In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the battlefront, analyse the decision over the weekend to send fighter planes to Ukraine, and we interview former NASA astronaut and test fighter pilot Terry Wirtz. Terry speaks about his experience working alongside Russian cosmonauts, describes the moment he saw the 2014 war from space, and analyzes the West's strategic thinking regarding Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 21st of August, one year and 178 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and our guest is former NASA astronaut, Terry Wirtz. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Welcome back. We managed to keep the place uh, intact without you, although there was a slight flood. But I'll do the uh, the monumental, fairly monumental events, I think, over the weekend a bit later. But I'll start with the news from today. So dozens of flights were redirected over Moscow this morning after two allegedly Ukrainian drones were brought down over the region. So Russian Federal Agency for Air Transport said that 45 passenger flights and two cargo flights were redirected to alternative airports in Nizhny Novgorod, Kazan and St. Petersburg before airspace restrictions were lifted at 8.30am local Moscow time today. No casualties reported as a result of any drone activity. Uh, Russia's Defence Ministry said an attempt by Kyiv to carry out, quote, an an attack with an aircraft-type unmanned aerial vehicle was foiled Hmm. around 6.50am local. They said the drone was suppressed by means of electronic warfare and crashed into the Odintsovo district, which is just southwest of the capital. But another another attack uh, that they say was by the Kyiv regime was apparently prevented in Istria, which is northwest of Moscow, about the same time, 8.15. So, well, a little bit earlier. So 8.15 local. And, well, just as with the the cause of the mysterious moon crash that we're going to come on to, Kyiv has not commented. Separately, though, the head of Russia's top propaganda network said that another, well, she's saying a Ukrainian drone, but another drone, something from the air, crashed just a few hundred metres away from her home. Russian Defence Ministry said it had thwarted, quote, a terrorist attempt, uh, a terrorist attempt by the key regime. So we're back to Schrodinger's drones. Um, they had stopped it by shooting down a drone in Istria, as I was just saying, about 8.15. Um, but Margarita Simonyan, who's the chief of uh, RT, the RT television network, formerly known as Russia Today, but RT now, a uh, vocal supporter of the war in Ukraine, she said that drone was shot down in the Istra district, fell in the street next to ours. Now, there was a third drone that appears to have been destroyed in the vicinity of Kaluga, but this this is about 100k southwest of Moscow. But it just continues that pattern that we've seen in recent weeks of, of stuff getting through. I mean, OK, air defence is, is shooting down some of them, electronic warfare. But, I mean, they're, get, they're getting into 
Moscow. I mean, we don't know if these are coming from Ukraine. There's suggestion there could be um, partisans, Russian partisan networks inside Russia, obviously, firing these things. But, you know, I'm just amazed that these things are still are still going on. Anyway, other other news from today. So inside Ukraine now, ISW, the Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, they're reporting that geolocated footage, or they're reporting today that geolocated footage from over the weekend shows that Ukrainian forces have advanced to the east of Robotina. That's the western of the two axes of advance in the south. They also report that a Russian, a prominent Russian mill blogger has claimed that Russian forces uh, are facing issues with counter-battery capabilities. So battery is the subunit, the smaller unit of, a, of an artillery unit. So counter-battery fire is when you fire back at the, at the artillery that's firing at you with radars these days, especially if they are firing dumb dumb rounds, i.e. just relying on physics. It goes up certain speed, certain height, distance, angle, all the rest of it. You can work out with a clever radar and some maths that, that France has been able to do. You can work out where it's come no, from. No, so so counter-battery fire is is um, and counter-battery capabilities is hitting back at the things that are firing at you. So this mill blogger said that Russian forces continue to face issues with counter-battery capabilities on all sectors of the front, but particularly in the Zaporizhia direction. Now, that is the axis that we're talking about. If this is a suggestion that, this is me commenting now, if this is a suggestion that Russia's artillery units are lacking ammunition or being wiped out themselves, it may be as a result of the, the slight change in Ukrainian tactics in, we, in recent weeks to go after the depth battle, i.e., you know, it's extremely hard at the, at the front through the minefields, so they are going after those long-range targets, going for Russian artillery and logistic nodes. So maybe maybe we are seeing the effect at the front and in the mill blogger community from that uh, change in tactics. Now, Hannah Malia, who's Ukraine's deputy defence minister, she said Russia has tried to counterattack around Robotina with, uh, without success and added that Ukraine has made small gains around Bakhmut, so we're up in the Donbass now, in the last week taking, well, she said 43 square kilometres. But she said that Russia is trying to regain lost position positions around Staromayorsk and Uruzhina, which were recently retaken by Ukrainian armed forces. That's on the, the kind of eastern of the of the two axes down south. She said the Russians have mined in three layers and all the ways to advance are reinforced. The key dominant heights, or they've reinforced the key dominant heights with concrete, so the advance is extremely difficult. Separately now, down to Mariupol, down on the the um, Sea of Azov, the coast of the Sea of Azov, a Russian warship reportedly moved in there for the first time amid claims that it's going to be the port there's going to be turned into a military base. So this comes from Petri Andrushenko, who's an advisor to the ousted mayor of Mariupol. He said um, this is the first instance since the occupation a Russian warship entered and moored in the waters of the Mariupol seaport. Now, possibly connected to that movement of Russian Black Sea Fleet vessels, officials in Odessa, so down on the southwest coast of, of Ukraine now, officials in Odessa are warning of a very high threat level after they assess Russia has increased the number of missile carriers, caliber cruise missile carriers in the Black Sea, and so as well as as well as the kilo class diesel electric submarines that I always have a complete brain moment and call them nuclear. They're not; they're diesel electric. But the, um, the Kilo-class submarines are still around, we think, working out of Novorossiysk, and uh, they fire calibers as well. But they just added, to put that in context, 19 missiles hit Odessa in July, killing one person, injuring many more, and badly damaging, you may remember the pictures, the badly damaging the 18th century Transfiguration Cathedral in the, in the city there. So that's it for the, for the current updates. I'll come back shortly with, um, with bits and bobs from over the weekend. Thanks, Tom. Can we go to Francis Sternley? Thanks, David. Dom is going to cover shortly what is undoubtedly the most significant political development of the last few days, namely the decision by the US, the Netherlands and Denmark to give Ukraine F-16 modern fighter jets. It is a huge moment, though one marred, no doubt, by frustration for the Ukrainians that this commitment couldn't have been made a year or more ago. If it had, they may well have had the aircraft for the counteroffensive, and who knows what the implications then would have been for those drives. We've spoken to soldiers, of course, on the ground who have spoken about the reality of not having what they feel is their superiority. And if they had, then, as I say, who knows what we might be talking about now. But nonetheless, it further doubles down the point that NATO 
was keen to stress at the Vilnius summit that the West is committed to supporting Kyiv for as long as it takes. That matters in the present context, I would argue, as is the fact that these jets are being sent from European countries. If the US support for Ukraine were to wane as a consequence of the next presidential election, it will be up to Europe to step up to the plate. And this is evidence that it is, I think, gradually recognising that fact, albeit slower than many would like. It is worth adding that in the background, we understand the United Kingdom also played a key role in forming this coalition. I remember we reported at the time on very early discussions that I think ultimately culminated in this. Now, one humorous moment occurred at the press conference, which is when Zelensky was asked whether Kyiv might surrender certain territories to Russia in exchange for future NATO membership. And he replied, oh, yes, we're ready to exchange Belgorod for our membership in NATO. Of course, Belgorod being the uh, territory, the border region that's been attacked by Kiev-aligned forces. So just it gives an insight, I think, into the, uh, the confidence of Zelensky at the present moment, despite what has no doubt been a very challenging few weeks and months. Now, in other news, and we'll explore this with our guest shortly, of course, the Kremlin's first mission to the moon for nearly 50 years has crashed into the surface, destroying Putin's ambitions of winning a new space race. The Russian space agency said that it lost contact with the uncrewed Luna 25 as it was orbiting the moon ahead of a planned landing. As James Kilner writes in his coverage of the story for the paper, the failure of Luna 25 is a major blow to the prestige of the Russian space programme and also to the Kremlin, which has wanted to use it to promote Russia as a global technological superpower. Of course, a successful mission by Luna 25 would have paved the way for further Russian missile missions to the moon and, of course, also underlines that... In many ways, Russia purports to be this great power, just as we perceived with its army prior to this war, many did. But the reality is some way off that. And it's going to undermine its plans to join China to build a moon base by the mid-2030s. We are seeing in this new Cold War II context, if it can be articulated in that way, countries are using space once again as a means of competing with each other. And no doubt China will be not happy that Russia has failed in this, given that China did, I think, want to work with them in order to build this moon base. But as I say, more on that and other topics later. The other big story is that the most senior Russian official to visit the European Union since the war began is holding talks in Hungary over a potential new Black Sea grain deal that excludes Ukraine. So this is Rustam Minikanov, the head of Russia's Tatarstan region. He supports Russia's invasion of Ukraine, suffice to say, and is sanctioned by the US, but not the EU. He wrote over the weekend... Arrived at the invitation of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban to Budapest, we talked with Mr. Prime Minister about the contribution Tatarstan makes to strengthening Russian-Hungarian relations. But what we understand is that he is pushing to sign a deal with Qatar and Turkey that will accelerate grain exports to Africa. But... Other developments are stirring in the Black Sea. James Kilner last week on the podcast spoke about the potential significance of Ukraine's new export corridor, where a Hong Kong flagged container ship stuck in Odessa left the port to see if it could make the journey without being fired upon by Russian cruisers. Very brave of them. Well, it has now, we understand, reached uh, its destination safely, suggesting that Ukraine could, could use its new Black Sea export corridor for further grain shipments. So Denis Martruk, who's the deputy head of the Agrarian Council, has said only one commercial vessel has passed through so far, but it shows readiness to move by alternative routes. Further, there should be a movement of potentially seven to eight more ships. Then, perhaps in the future, these alternative routes will become a corridor for the movement of ships that are travelling with cargoes of grain and oil seeds. Now, if that were the case, it would, of course, offer a lifeline for sea routes, although it would still mean a serious curtailment of the amount shipped out. But we're monitoring very closely. And of course, more on that as we have it, David. Thanks, Francis. Dom, can we come back to you? Would you just talk us through one of the incredibly significant developments over the weekend? This is the decision by the US, the Netherlands and Denmark to give uh, many F-16 planes to Ukraine. Could you just talk to us about that? And then we'll bring in Francis to comment on that. So this comes from President Zelensky. He's been out on, on manoeuvres over the weekend. He's still out. He's in Copenhagen a couple of hours ago. So the context, hold in mind the announcement on Friday that we spoke about on Friday's pod 
that the US has approved the transfer of F-16 fighter jets from Denmark and the Netherlands to Ukraine. Okay, so hold that. Right, so back to President Zelensky. His first stop was Sweden. Now, after negotiations with Ulf Christensen, who's the Swedish PM, um, President Zelensky said over the weekend, Ukrainian pilots have already started familiarisation training on Swedish Jazz 39 Gripen fighters, adding, quote, the future steps regarding the possibility of opening the subject of the Gripen transfer to Ukraine were also discussed. All right, so let's have a quick look at that. The Saab Jazz 39 Gripen, a highly versatile single-engine multi-purpose fighter jet, one of its features is that it's able to take off and land from from rush, rough strips, including uh, roads, motorways, what have you. So it's it's designed to, in the first hours of a conflict, to, to disperse, to get away from the airfields that are going to be targeted, and they can operate out of, like, say, off motorways and, and so on and so forth. Now, JAS, J-A-S, it's essentially Swedish for multi-purpose. It's, here we go, strap in, everybody. I'm going to try some Swedish. Yacht attack, yacht attack spawning which means hunting, attack, reconnaissance. So a multi-role fighter, basically. There are questions over which variant uh, is going to be sent and whether permissions are required from the US. So the latest model, the E model, is likely to require US permission. But the C variant, if, which is thought to be the most likely to be the one sent, might not. That uses a Volvo RN12 engine, which is produced in Sweden from a, from a US design so so they might need permission the e variant uses a us engine so export permission would likely be needed but you know considering where we are with the debate at the moment about f16s and what have you i think it's extremely doubtful the us would hold back on any gripen transfers so good news good news there for fighters no numbers on the gripen but a very capable fighter multi-role fighter and that was that was a, a big success from president Zelensky's visit to sweden whilst he was there a couple of more things you need to need to realize and need to need to be brought up to speed on so he's agreed with sweden that that, that ukraine and sweden are going to jointly work on production of cv-90s infantry fighting vehicle uh, in ukraine so opening a production plant in ukraine this is significant news also president Zelensky said he'd secured sweden's support for his country's path to the eu and sweden quote stands ready to provide so not you know, it's coming on Tuesday, but stands ready to provide, fairly unequivocal, stands ready to provide advanced water pumping systems to restore the water supply at the Kokovka hydroelectric plant that um, that Russia blew up a few weeks ago. So a good a good visit to Sweden. He then moved on, went down to um, to the Netherlands. It was later confirmed that the Netherlands and Denmark will between them send dozens of F-16s to Ukraine. So he met with Mark Rutte, the Dutch Prime Minister, and after that, so President Zelensky said the Netherlands are going to donate 42, uh, which is basically the entire Dutch inventory of F-16s. They're, they're moving on to the F-35, so they are, you know, they're moving their crews and their whole systems and all the rest of it. So whilst you know, I wouldn't call them spare, but you know, they are, they're not, they're on the way up. So 42 F-16s available there. That's after the pilots and engineers have been trained. Now, it should be noted that Mr. Ruta said the final number had not been agreed. And just as an aside here, you may remember July 17th, 2014, when Russia murdered 196 Dutch citizens with the shooting down of Malaysia Airlines MH17 over eastern Ukraine. I think with, that was done, that was attributed to a book missile. In response to the announcement that the Netherlands could be donating 42 F-16s to Ukraine, a number of commentators have made the point of what goes around comes around. But Zelensky then moved on to Denmark. Uh, Denmark also said the final number has not been decided about F-16s, but at a press conference yesterday at the Screedstrap airbase in northern Denmark, the um, Danish Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen said her country would provide 19 jets, hopefully six around the new year, eight more next year, and the remaining five in 2025. So, you know, again, they're not going to be there by next week, but it's it's all going in the right direction. She said, please take this donation as a token of Denmark's unwavering support for your country's fight for freedom. There's a lovely picture, actually, of President Zelensky with um, with um, Danish PM Mette Frederiksen, who, remember, some had tipped her for the NATO Secretary General role. But obviously that, that went away. Jens Stoltenberg's been extended. But a great photo of the two of them sat in a in an F-16. I think it's got to be one of the training variants because it's a two-seater. F-16 is a single-seat fighter. Some some countries use the two-seat variant. You need you need a two-seat variant so you can train on it. Most countries use that two-seater just for training. Some do 
stick an extra fuel tank in the back. I, th- I don't think the Dutch. I think the Dutch keep the, the two seaters just as um, as trainers. But anyway, great a great picture there. And then finally on this bit. So a couple of hours ago, President Zelensky addressed Danish um, uh, parliamentarians in Copenhagen, and he said, "quote People value strength. Strength helps, but strength is not always primary. Strength is a consequence." a consequence of who you are and who is with you, whom you respect and who respects you, whom you want to see in your home and who wants to see you, whom you trust and who trusts you. Dear people of Denmark, Ukraine believed in you when this evil Russian invasion began and I thank you for trusting us. Now, it needs to be said, Defence Minister, Danish Defence Minister Jakob Ellemann Jensen, he said, we donate weapons under the condition that they are used to drive the enemy out of the territory of Ukraine and no further than that, unquote. So the old concerns about thoughts, issues around escalation have still not gone away. And in that vein, to, to finish, and as, as predictable as it is boring, almost as if they've got no stronger argument, which I think is the case, Russia's ambassador to Denmark, Vladimir Barbin, he said, the fact that Denmark has now decided to donate 19 F-16 aircraft to Ukraine leads to an escalation of the conflict by hiding behind a premise that Ukraine itself must determine the conditions for peace Denmark seeks with its actions and words to leave Ukraine with no other choice but to continue the military confrontation with Russia. Now, I think many would agree with the second half of that statement. They're not going to be happy with that in the Kremlin, Vladimir. You need to get back on script, mate. Anyway, that's it. That's the update from uh, from today, David. Thank you very much, Tom. Can you speak a little bit more about some of the news we heard over the weekend? So the big news of the weekend was this strike on Chernihiv, in which at least seven people, including a six-year-old child, were killed. This is a Russian missile strike that hit a theatre in Chernihiv. Further 129 wounded, including 15 children. This came from Ukraine's interior minister, interior minister Ihor Klemenko, via telegram. The number of wounded and hospitalised later rose, and Ukrainian officials said people were hit while they were going to church to celebrate a religious festival. Mr. Klemenko said the victims were in vehicles, walking across pedestrian crossings, walking from all three churches. We must clearly document this war crime. Now, we, should, we, we need to talk about this. Ukrainian social media users said that the Russian military may have deliberately targeted the theatre because it was hosting a meeting of drone designers that had been advertised online. Okay. Now, if anyone listening wants to try to explain that, that in some way justifies targeting civilians in a civilian area, email me directly, dominic.nichols at telegraph.co.uk, and we'll have a nice chat. Regardless of what the hell's going on in that in that theatre, if they're wargaming or they're playing whatever, drawing tanks, you, you don't fire missiles at a civilian theatre and kill, and kill people. But if you want to debate that, if you want to try the whataboutery, then email me. So also over the weekend, a Ukrainian drone... We think Ukrainian drone, but something targeted a Russian military airfield in the Novgorod region. This is home to Russia's 840th heavy heavy bomber regiment. Caused a fire. Well, so Russia's defense ministry said caused a fire and damaged one warplane. Right. So the attack base in Solsky, this is about 100 k south of St. Petersburg, 500 kilometers northwest of Moscow. In other words, a very, very long way away from Ukraine. It's uh, home to the Tupolev Tu-22M strategic bombers. They're codenamed Backfire by NATO. These are the ones, or some of the some of the Tupolev, some of the bombers that are Moscow's using to fire cruise missiles at Ukraine. A local Telegram channel said that two aircraft were damaged and posted uh, pictures of a fire at the base. Russian MOD said nobody was hurt. The fire was quickly extinguished. As a result of the terrorist attack, obviously terrorist attack on the territory of the airfield, a fire broke out in the parking lot which was quickly eliminated by firefighters. One aircraft was damaged, the ministry said, in a massive understatement. Because if you go and look at the images on social media, you will see an aircraft, a Tupolev, absolutely engulfed in flames. I mean, there's nothing coming out of that at all. Following that attack on Saturday, at least six Tu-22M3 aircraft were relocated from Solsi up to the Kola Peninsula, right up north, the Olenya Air Base up by Mamansk, right up in the north of Russia, and you may remember this time last year, Russia moved about a dozen Tu-60, and these are the older Tu-16, Tu-95 strategic bombers. I think they're, I think they're um, propeller-driven, but they're still, you know, they're big and capable. They moved them to Alenya for the very same reason, because the Engels Air Base. Remember, the Engels Air Base was hit by drones, 
And then on Sunday, yesterday, Ukraine is said to have struck a railway station in one of four alleged drone attacks across Kursk, Rostov and Belgorod. They all border Ukraine, as well as the Moscow strikes that we've been talking about at the start. Now, in Kursk, five people are injured and fire broke out when a drone hit the city's railway station. That was according to to the region's governor. And then just very finally from the weekend, so Britain's chief of defence staff, Admiral Sir Tony Radikin, he commented and posted imagery of himself on the Polish-Ukraine border with the commander of the of US uh, EUCOM, European Command, General Cavoli, uh, who's also Sakur, Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, so the head of the military side of NATO. They met Ukraine's chief of defence, General Valery Zaluzhny, and his senior team. They had a five-hour discussion on the counteroffensive and plans for this winter and 2024. And then uh, Admiral Radikin said uh, Russia underestimates Ukraine's resilience and resolve, continued military strength and expertise and the solidarity of its allies. So a busy weekend all in all, David. Thanks very much, Dom. Francis, I believe you have an announcement for our listeners before we go to our guest, Francis Dernley. Thanks, David. Now, before we bring in our guest, an update on our upcoming America trip. Thank you to all of those listeners who answered our call several weeks ago to help put us in touch with senior figures in the country for our upcoming trip. We already have many interviews lined up for when we're out there in September and beforehand as well, which we look forward to sharing with you in due course. Now, we mentioned that there would be an event for you and we have an update on this. So at 7 p.m. on the 14th of September, we will be recording a special episode of Ukraine The Latest at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C., with a live audience of listeners to the podcast, followed by a Q&A with us. The tickets are free, but are, of course, limited. They will become available at the following link, which I'll read now, www.telegraph.co.uk slash Washington ticket. I'll repeat that www.telegraph.co.uk slash Washington ticket from 8am Eastern Daylight Time tomorrow. That's Tuesday the 22nd. We'll also post the link in the description for this episode. Now, if you try and visit the page before 8am Eastern Daylight Time on Tuesday, you will see a 404 error page. Don't worry, that will disappear at 8am on the dot tomorrow. We very much look forward to recording the episode and meeting some of you. To those who are unable to make it, the event will be recorded and released as another video special in the days afterwards. We will at the event try and also answer more of your questions that you've submitted to us in recent weeks. So in that way, it will be very much a collective enterprise that brings in those of you who won't be able to attend in person. So thank you all again very much and we're looking forward to it. Well, thank you very much, Francis and Dom. Now, it gives us great pleasure to welcome Terry Furtz joining us from the US. Terry, thank you so much for your time today. We gave you a rather truncated introduction at the top of this podcast. And would you just give us a bit more of a sense of your background and experience as a pilot and later as an astronaut? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. I've been listening every day for the last year and a half. You, do, you guys do a great job and a great service. So my background, I was a United States Air Force F-16 pilot and test pilot, retired as a colonel a few years ago. Uh, I spent 16 years at NASA as an astronaut. I flew on the space shuttle Endeavour on mission STS-130 as a pilot and then on the space station on a Russian Soyuz launched from Baikonur on Expedition 42 and 43 excuse me, where I was the space station commander. Well, let's talk about the Russian space program. Obviously, it made the news over the weekend. Francis gave us the top lines there. What was your reaction to the failure of the moon mission? Yes. So they were trying to land on the South Pole, where we think there might be some water underground. And so that was an interesting mission. The Indians are actually going to hopefully land there in the next week or two. Chandrayaan is their mission. It wasn't surprising, to be honest. They've had so many failures. The last decade or so has been pretty rough for the Russian space program. Actually, the Soviet Union landed on the moon in 1966. So they were able to do this successfully a long time ago. But uh, they've just had problems with corruption and delays. Their space center is called Vostochny. Vostok means east, so it's uh, in the east, I guess, near Kamchatka and the Pacific Ocean. That's where this lunar mission launched from, but it was years and years delayed, billions of dollars over budget. 
Uh, if you Google Russian rocket failures, there have just been a lot since in the last decade. When I was there training for my last flight, a Proton, which is a really big rocket. It's much bigger than the Soyuz is their standard rocket. One of those blew up the year before that happened. They had installed the rate gyro sensors. These are the things that tell the rocket which direction it's pointed. They installed them backwards in the second stage. So when staging happened, the rocket thought it was going in the wrong direction and it turned itself around, which is not the best way to fly a rocket. So a proton blew up there. When I was in space, a Progress, which is a cargo ship, uh, blew up and they actually delayed my return to Earth. I actually got stuck in space for a month while they sorted out what caused this accident because they didn't want to launch our <laughs> our replacement crew until they figured that out. We had some NASA astronauts and cosmonauts on a Soyuz rocket where, again, first stage to second stage had a problem and the Soyuz capsule had to basically do an ejection. They parachuted back to Earth two minutes after launch. So that was one of the world's shortest human space flights at the time. They had another Soyuz that somebody on the ground drilled a hole in and some apparent sabotage attempt a few years ago. So when it got to the space station, suddenly they noticed a little bit of air was leaking out and they, they found this hole that someone had drilled. A couple modules have put the space station out of control where the small thrusters on a, on a module would fire incorrectly and cause the station to go out of control. That happened to me when I was on the when I was commander of the space station, my Soyuz had some accidental thruster firings. And so there's been some serious problems with their space program over the last decade. And in fact, Russia used to be the go-to launch provider for the world until 2017. They were just dominating that launch market because they were cheap and they used to be dependable. Uh, and SpaceX has completely taken that over now. Everybody goes to the Falcon 9 and the Russian space industry is just not in great shape now. Well, those are some astonishing stories from you, Terry. Can I ask, what was it like working with the cosmonauts themselves in space and, and with, the, with the, the, the Russian space program supporting you all? What was your experience there? Yeah, you know, I really enjoyed working with Russian. I, lo I loved learning the language. I, I speak French, but Russian's a little bit more difficult. I'll tell you, the first 10 years are the hardest. After that, it gets, it gets easier. I enjoyed the trainers. I enjoyed the food. I had a, a great time with the cosmonauts in space. It, it was a positive experience. And for years, I would say, look, this is how people can and should get along together. Like our, our cooperation in space, it was a good partnership. It was an example of how we, we can and should get together. And, you know, three of the cosmonauts that I was with in space, Sasha Samokutyaev, Yelena Sarova, and Max Sarayev, three of them are now in the Duma promoting the war, like voting to attack Ukraine, voting to restrict freedom for their fellow Russian citizens. It's just like incredibly frustrating and, and just angering, to be honest, to think of, of these men and women that I was in space with. They should be the most enlightened humans on the planet. And here they are. There are several others that I didn't fly with that are doing the same thing. Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space back in the 1960s, is one of the head people in the Duma, the congressman, if you will, in Russia. And she's the one that introduced the bill to let um, Putin be dictator for life. And so Sasha Samokutyaev, my crewmate and I, in the winter of 2015, probably January of 2015, we were on the Russian segment looking out the window one, one night and we saw red flashes in eastern Ukraine. We were watching people being killed because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It was a solemn moment. We didn't say a word. We just both sat there and watched this happen. And then now he's in the Duma voting to attack Ukraine again. So it's been incredibly frustrating for me to see that. Do you have any contact with these people anymore? Or would you, would you want any contact? What would, you say, what, would you, what would you say to them? Some of them are just too far gone. They just have been brainwashed. They support the war. One of the other, another crewmate who's not in the Duma, but he's a big fan. Krim Nash is what they say in Russian, which means Crimea's ours. He's promoting that in a big way. So there's a few that I do stay in touch with. I, I, I only know of one who has actively opposed the war. Very, very brave person. And, and the other ones, I think they just, they don't want something bad to happen to their family or whatever. And then many of them support it. Several have come back from the recent missions. And uh, a couple guys were just in Vostochny with Putin promoting the war, doing speeches on his behalf. There was a crew 
last right after the war started, they showed up in yellow and blue flight suits and everybody said, oh, they're supporting Ukraine. They were, <laughs> my one friend who's a cosmonaut who's against the war, he immediately said, Terry, they're not supporting Ukraine. Those are their school colors. Like that was their university flag colors. And in fact, they, they did greetings from the space station for their Russian military for victory in Ukraine. So they've been using this. The former head of the Russian space program, a guy named Dmitry Rogozin, has been or was until he got sacked, bragging just incessantly about how Roscosmos, the civilian agency, could be used to make nuclear missiles and is helping the war in Ukraine. And so a lot of them have used their platform, I guess, in their space program to promote the war. Given everything you've said, Terry, what's the state of cooperation at the moment on the ISS? Well, that's a great question. In fact, a a former NASA deputy administrator who just left NASA just wrote an op-ed, I think it was last week, saying we should just deorbit the space station. And and he's right in that the war in Ukraine is more important than the ISS. But um, the grand irony is that we can't do that because we don't have any rocket engines on the space station. And I'll, I'll talk just a little technical here real quick. The station requires thrusters, like small rocket engines for two things. One, to help it point in the right direction, up, down, left, right. And then the other thing is to maneuver, to, to reboost. Because the station, about 400 kilometers above Earth, there's a little bit of atmosphere, very thin, and it slows the station down just a little bit. The orbit decays about 10 meters a day. It drops down about 10 meters a day. So every month or two, you have to fire the engines, speed up again, and climb. So you need the thrusters for those two things. And we don't have thrusters. The The only rockets on the space station are on the Russian segment. We decided back in 2001 to cancel what was going to be the U.S. propulsion module. So we can't operate the ISS without the Russian segment cooperating with us. And their modules attached to ours. Like you... It's just is not practical to just separate and 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 do that. So there's some technical reasons why we need to cooperate. Also, we share an atmosphere. It's the same air on both segments. We share power and data. So there needs to be some communication. But we still have even today. There's a there's a team of NASA people in Moscow. And then earlier in the segment, we were talking about drones and uh, you know surface air missiles being launched. And the Russians shot down that. <laughs> That Dutch airliner, I mean, hopefully they don't do that again, but I certainly would not put that past them. They're arresting American journalists. So this is just not a great time to have people on the ground in Russia. The other part of our cooperation besides the rocket thrusters is that we launch our astronauts on the Soyuz. I launched on the Soyuz from the same launch pad that Yuri Gagarin launched from. It was really cool. But we're still doing that in 2023, and we're allowing Russian cosmonauts to launch on our capsules. We have a SpaceX human capsule. Hopefully soon we'll have a Boeing capsule. And that's just not required. After 2011, when when the space shuttle program shut down, the only way we had to get to the space station was on a Russian Soyuz. And, And it was a good partnership, and it worked well until 2020 when our SpaceX capsule started becoming operational. But in, in 2023, it's just not required. There, You could schedule it so that we always made sure there was at least one American astronaut and we always made sure there was at least one Russian cosmonaut. And you can do that without without sending NASA people to Russia where the, the State Department has warned all Americans to leave immediately. It's too dangerous to be there. And yet we're still doing this cooperation. It's It's like we're pretending that it's that it's 2001 and it's not. Unfortunately, Putin has taken us the world down a very different path. Terry, thank you so much for your time today. On this theme of the ISS, obviously, when, after the, the end of the Cold War, it was it was held up as a beacon, really, of the kind of the the way in which the war had come down and and, and things had changed. That we were now going to be walk, working in a more cooperative world between Russia and America and other countries. Are you sad to see the end of that kind of cooperative spirit between countries that are now obviously ramping up it to being a more competitive space again, akin to the Cold War? And and what do you think will be lost as, as a result of that? Well, I loved my, I, I really liked that mission of cooperating with other countries. I think that that was the biggest success of the space station for the last 25 years or longer since it was conceived. And it's very sad to see what's happened in Russia. But to be honest, the station is still a great place for Europe and America and Japan and 
and Canada and, uh, you know, some Middle Eastern nations have flown. The UAE had several astronauts go to the space station. And so it still is a great place to cooperate. But the problem in Russia is, is, is one man, Putin, he has led the country down a very dark path. And it's just hard to get excited about cooperating with a country that is actively killing Ukrainians. The news from Chornahiv this weekend, like, how do you go get excited about cooperating in space? What we're doing today is kind of like, imagine if it was 1943 and some British and American and, and German scientists went on an Arctic expedition. I mean, that I'm sure there were good German, there were lots of great Germans. My family is German, but you just don't do that in 1943. And it, it feels a lot like 1943 now in Europe. That's a very interesting analogy. Just staying on this sort of theme, similar to the question David asked before, but when you were having, I suppose, one-on-one -on -one conversations in the module with your Russian counterparts, were there ever, did it ever turn to Putin? And did you get a sense from them that they knew that, that some of the claims that the Kremlin would make were ridiculous? So, you know, was there a rolling of the eyes? Or do you think actually that these people did genuinely and sincerely believe a lot of the nonsense that comes out of the Kremlin? So you would think the cosmonauts are the, like I said, they're some of the most enlightened human beings on earth. They spend years of their life in Houston. They speak English really well. They know right from wrong, right? And when I was there on my last flight, it was during the first invasion, like Russia invaded Ukraine, Russia annexed Crimea, Russia shot down the, uh, the the airliner we put sanctions on them and ironically when we did that it, it devalued the, the ruble went from 30 to 60 so it really was devalued and that meant a huge pay raise for my cosmonaut friends because they get paid in in uh in dollars and they also get paid for every little experiment they do they get paid they do capitalism much better than we do uh, i was getting five dollars a day tax-free when i was up there but uh so the cosmonauts get they all buy a big fancy SUV and they get free apartments from the state. So they're, they're just not going to criticize the state. Very few of them have the guts and the, frankly, the moral compass to do the right thing and criticize evil when they see it. But we would talk about that to your question. We would talk very openly. We would in, in training, you, you always like at the end of a training session, you, you get together and you toast. They always have vodka to toast at the end of the training and the, the first thing would say, look, politics is politics. We're going to ignore that. Our goal is just to stay alive. Like we're about to go into space. Let's forget about politics on Earth and let's work together, which which was a, which was a great sentiment. But so we, we definitely did acknowledge it when the sanctions were coming on. The, the cosmonauts were on the phone every day with their families back on Earth. Hey, what's going on? But, you know, and here they are a couple years later joining the Duma and promoting the war. And that's just inexcusable in my in my humble opinion. It's very, very interesting. And just one last question from me, if I may, Terry, which is, of course, you've got a very distinguished military background prior to working as an astronaut. What are your strategic reflections, uh, weaving in that past experience on where we are in the war? And of course, this question today about, uh, about aircraft and, and what that could mean for the Ukrainians in the long term. Yeah, it's, it's, that's a great question. And this is what <laughs> concerns me above all. I know several of us here are, are former military officers. So one of the things, the way NASA went to the moon, President Kennedy gave a speech and he said, we're going to land on the moon by the end of this decade and return him safely to the earth. That was my favorite part of his speech, the return him safely to the earth, by the way. When George H.W. Bush had Desert Storm in 1991, he had a very clear vision. We're going to remove Iraq from Kuwait. It was a very simple vision if you're going to do something, a very hard task, you need a very clear vision, and then you work backwards from that. If, you, if the goal is to remove Russia from Ukraine, what do we need for that? Well, they need air superiority. Being the fighter pilot, I'll talk about air superiority first. And none of us could ever imagine fighting a, as NATO soldiers fighting a battle without air superiority. And yet, that's exactly what Ukraine is doing against a, a superpower without air superiority. It's incredibly tough what those soldiers are doing. So how do you... The question is not... Should we give them JAS-39 Gripens or should we give them F-16s or how much should they do? The question is, they need air, air superiority, so therefore what capabilities do we need to give them? F-16s would help. More Patriots would help. It took a year to get Patriots there to begin with. 
F-16s on February 25th of last year, I was tweeting, hey, we need to send them <laughs> Patriots and F-16s and ATACMs. And here we are a year and a half later, and we're still a year out from those things happening. So that's been incredibly frustrating. And our guiding principle, our North Star of supporting Ukraine. And by the way, first of all, let me say, I am not an American government official. I'm a private citizen. So everything I'm saying is just as a private citizen. And I'm also very thankful for the support that America and Europe has done. We've given them tens of billions of dollars in military and economic aid. And but for that aid, Ukraine would probably have lost very quickly. And so I'm very thankful for what we've done. I just think we've done, gone about it in the wrong way. So what I was saying, our North Star for providing them with support has been timidity and fear and making sure we don't offend Russia um, rather than here's the vision of kicking the Russians out and therefore they need this many squadrons of F-16s. And frankly, I was an F-16 guy for 10 years, best airplane ever made. It is not the 2023 air superiority machine. Those are F-35s. If we really want to give them air superiority, they need F-35s to go against those SA-10, SA-20 or as the Russians call them, S-300 and S-400s. The other thing is, what, what kind of mechanized vehicles do they have? We've given them t 12 Challengers here and 10 Leopard 1s there and M American M1s that still haven't even gotten there yet, I don't think. And so they've had this hodgepodge of equipment coming in. I, I joke it's like the Goodwill of military stuff. In, in America, Goodwill is like a thrift shop, secondhand store. <laughs> so we're giving them all of these used equipment, a lot of different things. Imagine the nightmare for the sergeants on the ground trying to make sure they're, everybody's trained in all of these different kind of tanks and guns and artillery. The logistics and training is a nightmare. Again, my point is, let's start with the goal. The goal is to get Russia out of Ukraine. First of all, Putin could make that happen tomorrow, but I don't think he will. And then second of all, come up with a specific strategic plan of they need this equipment to achieve the goal. We've been doing that in backward. We've been saying, well, let's wait six months and then maybe give them HIMARS. Let's wait six months and then talk about F-16s. And that's there, there are Ukrainians dying today. We just heard that in the beginning of this podcast. And the time is not to we don't have the ukrainians just don't have time to just wait around for this to happen and again the, the the real reason why this matters so much is that the whole world is watching especially china especially iran and north korea we promised ukraine in 1994 that the uk russia and america would defend them in exchange for giving up their nuclear weapons they upheld their end of the bargain they gave up their nuclear weapons and we have sort of upheld our end of the bargain, but not wholeheartedly, right? And the lesson that we've been preaching loud and clear to North Korea and Iran is that get your nuclear weapons and you can do whatever you want. You don't, you don't have to worry about behaving properly in the community of nations. And that's something that we need to think of because the war is not only about Ukraine. This unchecked evil doesn't ever just stop growing. It doesn't say, okay, that's enough evil. Sudetenland's all I need. I'm, I'm happy. Hitler keeps on growing. And I'm sure that, that the, the dictators and the authoritarian states of the world are not just going to be happy with what they have. So we really need to think about that in a bigger picture, I think, and um, be very clear about what the vision is and then be very deliberate about giving them the capabilities to achieve that vision as opposed to just being worried about are we going to offend Russia or not, which seems to have been a big driver over the last year and a half. Terry, thanks for that. It's Dom here. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us today. Can I um, just ask you a couple of things, if it's, if it's sort of bringing you back down to earth a little bit, although not all the way, with your former <laughs> F-16 um, flying helmet on, you, you've just said it there, F-16 is a, is, is a great aircraft. Many, many other people have said, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. We had Frederick Kagan on from the Institute for the Study of War a couple of weeks ago, who said it was a you know, very, very good aircraft, but not, not the best for Ukraine. I just wonder why... Could you explain why you say it is it is such a great aircraft? And I'm not saying that the two points are, are at odds with each other, but why might Frederick Kagan have taken a slightly different view? So if you can talk us through the, the sort of the, the Haynes manual, if you like, of the F-16, and then also offer a comment about Gripen and why that might be so, so appropriate here as well, please. Sure. By the way, that episode was spectacular. If your listeners haven't heard it, go back a week, I think it was, and listen, that, he was just amazing. That was a great episode. So the F-16 is good for several reasons. It's single engine. It's a smaller cost per hour than many of the two engine 
fighters out there, the logistics are a little bit easier. There are thousands of pilots around the world. There's plenty of spare parts. So it's not like a unique, rare, complicated airplane. It's a well-established airplane. Lots and lots of weapons can be launched from it. And what we're talking about is having it be, you know, a weapon launching platform. And so it can be used to shoot all kinds of missiles into um, into the battlefield. We have been, I think the Scalp and the Storm Shadow, those missiles can be retrofitted to the MiG-29s and the Su-24s that Ukraine have. But that's not that's not great. It doesn't have all the capabilities. One of the important things you want to do is the suppression of enemy air defenses, SEED, or making sure the Russian surface-to-air missiles don't operate very well. And we have this missile called a HARM. It's what I flew back in the 90s. It's a missile that goes after Russian radars. And you can put that on a MiG-29. It's not that great. It really doesn't have the capabilities you want. If you put it on an F-16, it can do a lot better work. So it's as a, as a weapon launching platform, the F-16 is much better because it can fire all kinds of modern American and NATO weapons um, more smoothly. It can also do air defense. It's not the best air defense fighter. It'd be better to have F-15s or F-22s would be the best or F-35s would actually probably be what's required, but it could defend Ukraine much better than the MiG-29 can. And so if they had F-16s a year ago, just think about how many Ukrainians would still be alive. If if they just shot down five or 10% of the missiles coming in, it's, it's a way to shoot down inbound Russian missiles. Not perfect, it can't shoot them all down, but it would certainly help at that. The problem is it's a fourth generation fighter, what we call fourth generation, which means it's not stealth. Um, Airplanes like the F-35 and F-22 are fifth generation, and they can go operate in what we call the WES or the MEZ, the the weapon engagement zone of these Russian surface-to-air missiles are pretty dangerous to an F-16. As an F-16 pilot, I would not want to fly through an SA-10 or SA-20 zone because they're probably going to shoot you down. The F-35, it's a much different story, um, I think. I'm not an F-35 pilot. I never was. But from what I understand, it, those can operate a lot better. So if you truly want to have air superiority there, you need fifth-generation fighters. And your question about the Gripen, the Swedish JS-39, again, it's a small fighter, single engine, lower cost per hour. Uh, it's a fourth-generation fighter, so it it doesn't have stealth, so it can't just go fly willy-nilly across the battlefield. It's going to get shot down by those modern Russian surface-to-air missiles. Um, But it can carry NATO weapons, which is a good thing. It has some austere operating. You know, in Ukraine, that might be a good thing because the Russians do target airfields. And so um, it would, the, the ability to launch from a highway sounds good. And when you drive across the Autobahn in Germany, there's all of a sudden you're driving for two miles in a perfectly straight line. And that's because back in the eighties, NATO designed the autobahns or probably in the fifties or sixties to operate with aircraft. But in order to really seriously operate from a, from a road, you would need lots of maintenance and weapons and all that logistics that I don't know we're going to get to Ukraine. So that's a nice capability, but it's not the most important. But I think that the other thing is we just don't want to give them 18 different <laughs> types of aircraft. Like one or two would be good, but the more different types of equipment, it's just more training, more complicated. Um, and you can't just jump to another airplane. You need at least some minimum amount of training before you're good at it. So I think if we can give them grippins, that's really good. But we just want to minimize the the amount of compl- complex training and logistics that go- come along with that. Thank you. That was. I got one more question, which obviously I'll split into into three parts here. So you were just talking there about about how able, easy or difficult it is to to move on to a different aircraft. A lot of talk about how a trained MiG twenty nine Ukrainian pilot or Ukrainian MiG twenty nine pilot, how long he or she would take to fly an F sixteen. I've heard anything from from four months up to two years. Where would you where would you stick your your peg in the sand on on that? And finally, you said the harm. The, the high, was it high speed anti radiation missile? You said that would be better on F sixteen than MiG twenty nine. So what does the aircraft say to the missile, or what what can it do for the missile to make it better suited to an F sixteen than the MiG twenty nine? Thanks, Tori. 
Sure. So for how long it takes, again, you don't, you don't have to be a fighter weapon school level. So in the Air Force, we have fighter weapon school, the Navy has Top Gun. Of course, fighter weapon school is a lot better, but you, <laughs> you don't have to be an absolute expert at the top of your game and perfect at everything to have the basic training. So I would imagine that a few months would probably get it done. The pilots are going to need to have some level of English because everybody doing the training and all the documents and even the buttons and stuff in the airplane, everything's in English. Hopefully young 20 something and 30 something year old Ukrainians have that English skill. If they don't, that's going to be, that's going to slow things down. Then again, like their families are being killed. So they're going to be high. They're probably willing to work on the weekends to get trained. And so I think months and not years is the right answer. Now, if you're taking a 20 year old right out of school and who's never flown before, that's probably a two year process. It, it just takes time to get good as a pilot. But I think that you could convert the pilots pretty quickly. But it's not only the pilots, it's also the maintenance folks. And the maintenance can't be underestimated. There's a lot of complicated logistics that goes into operating. You know, I don't know if it's 10 or 20 hours per hour per flight hour, but there's a lot of hours of maintenance that have to happen in between sorties and so on just to keep the airplanes flying. And back to the harm, again, this is the... In Vietnam, we had something called the Wild Weasel Mission, where the F-105G would go after the old Soviet SA-2 surface-to-air missiles. You launch, it's, it's kind of a, a duel. They're launching missiles up at you and the jet, and you're launching missiles from the jet down at the radars and hoping to get there before their missile gets to you. And then I, I don't know exactly what they're doing with the harms on the MiG-29, but the, the bottom line is you can launch it in a dumb mode and hopefully it finds something on its own. Whereas if you had an F-16 with some better equipment that we have on the F-16, it, it could actually actively look for the radars and find a more precise location. And it's you're just better off. You're better at actually finding radars if you use the um, equipment on the F-16 versus when you strap it on a MiG-29, you're shooting it and hoping that it finds something. The, the odds of it actually finding something are much lower from what I understand. Well, thank you very much. Terry, for your answers there. Thank you, Francis and Dom, for your questions. We'll come back to you, Terry, for your final thoughts at the end. But before that, can we start with uh, Francis Sternley? Thanks, David, or should I say comrade, uh, for at last, as of Friday evening, we share the honour of joining Dom and Joe in being sanctioned by the Kremlin. Picture the scene, listeners. There I was in central London, dashing back to the office after collecting my US visa, when my phone suddenly burst into life with messages and calls. I knew something significant must have happened. Either it was a breaking news story or Dom had taken his shirt off in the office. But I opened up my phone and there, staring back at me, was a rather blunt text from a colleague that read simply, I hope you haven't got any holiday plans in Russia. You've just been banned. Uh, Then James Kilner kindly sent me a link to a press release from the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. It's quite a surreal moment when the world's largest country singles you out by name as a hostile entity. And I'll read a few highlights from this press release. In response to the aggressive anti-Russian policy pursued by London, whereby a mechanism of unilateral sanctions against Russian citizens and companies is actively employed, a decision has been made to expand Russia's stop list by including members of Great Britain's political establishment, army and law enforcement, the professional legal community and the journalistic corps. The expanded list includes, among others, UK Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, Lucy Fraser, and Minister of State for Defence, Annabel Goldie. And in view of London's unwavering military support for Kyiv's neo-Nazi regime, a decision was also made to impose individual personal sanctions against the leaders of the British private military intelligence company Prevail Partners. And in view of Britain's involvement in information and propaganda support for the Zelensky regime, Russophobic charged officials and correspondents in the British media, including dun, 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 the Daily Telegraph's David Knowles, Francis Durnley and Keith Freeman. Keith Freeman? Who is this international man of mystery? Surely the august Russian foreign ministry wouldn't make a rookie error and confuse Colin Freeman for a Keith Freeman. If anyone knows this Keith Freeman who works at The Telegraph and has somehow managed to upset the Ruskies on the down low. Do let us know. We'll get him a drink. 
The press release goes on to say that David Keith and I, along with several other journalists at the BBC and The Guardian, are, quote, implicated in fabricating fraudulent anti-Russia stories to be promoted in the media and in spreading false information about our country as they are trying to prevent and cut short attempts at impartial coverage of the developments in Ukraine and to exclude signs of dissent by using methods described by George Orwell in the novel's 1984, An Animal Farm. Now, what those methods are aren't exactly clear. I mean, it's quite hard to make tangible comparisons between reality and a story about fictional talking animals. But regardless, I will from now on be calling David Snowball in the office as long as he calls me Napoleon or Big Brother. But being serious for a moment, our commitment to keep bringing you factual reporting and analysis will not waver because of this, suffice to say. If anything, it will be the opposite. And I see it as a badge of honour that so many of the core team of this podcast have now been singled out by the Russian state. So, Snowball, what's your reaction when you heard the news? Thank you, Francis. Well, initial reaction, obviously, that, you know, I'd have to sell the diamond mines, my oil interests, my string of datches. But no, being serious for a second. Well, I was in the west of Scotland last last week on the island of Isla. If you like your whiskey, I would, would advise you look it up and do go visit. On the island next to Isla is Jura. A sort of long, huge island dominated by some mountains in the centre. And right at the end of that island is the, well, it's a sort of large cottage called Barn Hill. It's where uh, George Orwell wrote the majority of 1984. He was suffering from tuberculosis and he visited the island several times and uh, finished the novel and left the island for more treatment and never returned. He, he died. I won't, won't go on too much, but of course the, the central motto of the party in 1984 is war is peace, Freedom is slavery and ignorance is strength. And I would just ask all of our listeners to make your own minds up, really. Do you think over the past year and a half, the assessment of the Russian foreign ministry that this is what we have done, that what the reporting that we brought you from Kharkiv, from Kramatorsk, from Kiev, from Bucha, from Lviv, from across Europe, from NATO conferences, from London, do you think that lines up with what you read in 1984 or, or not? Do you think maybe... Maybe, maybe, maybe there's been some mistake. And I would ask as well, maybe look at everything we've been reporting on inside Russia and inside Ukraine and ask maybe war is peace, freedom is slavery and ignorance is strength. Does that potentially apply better to the methods employed by the Russian state? We, we never tell you what to think. It's really up to you to make your own mind up. But yes, I mean, Francis, as you said then, the, the idea that what we've been seeing, you know, is somehow fraudulent. I don't think there's much fraudulence about what we saw, what I saw in Kharkiv or on the road to Kramatorsk or in Kiev listening to the air raid sirens. Nothing fraudulent about any of that. But yeah, quite a surreal moment, a very surreal moment to sort of load down on your phone and be like, oh, right, OK. Interesting. Thank you, Francis. Dom Nichols. Thanks, David. Thanks, Francis. Glad to have you in the, uh, in the sanction room with me. In the words of the great sage John McLean, welcome to the party, pal. But anyway, my, my final thought, um, in line, in, well, in light of the plans, our plans that you heard earlier on, our plans coming together for the US trip, um, I've been doing some essential research and I need your help, please, listeners. Um, I need customer review, reviews on the following bars in Washington, please. Uh, Church Key near DuPont Circle and the Solace Brewing. This is serious, Francis. And the <laughs> Solace Brewing Tap Room and Blue Jacket, the last two in the Navy Yard neighbourhood. I'll be looking for other recommendations across other US cities in the near future. But that's your homework for tonight, please. Well, thank you, Francis and Dom. Terry, thanks so much for joining us. You've spoken um, about an incredible breadth of things during your time with us. Um, What's your final thought? Or would you just like to mention anything that we haven't spoken about so far? Sure. Well, my first uh, final thought is I'm jealous. Congratulations on being being sanctioned by Russia, David, Colin, or Keith, or uh, Francis. So congratulations there. I will recommend Founding Farmers is a great restaurant in D.C., um, but you know, I, I would much rather talk about space exploration and I don't want to bash the Russians for their failures in space that they, they, they speak for themselves, but the, just the biggest issue I think that we're facing right now, and it's, it's ironic that you were just talking about 1984. Um, it, this is what the world has become this, um, if it, it feels like this, uh, competition between authoritarian totalitarian, um, surveillance states, you know, in China, the, what China does would make George Orwell j- just je- jealous. He, he wouldn't believe how great they are, the surveillance state that they've become. 
And, you know, the freedom-loving democracy, we, we tend to be a mess. We don't get our politics very well. We're always having changeovers. You know, we're not the most organized bunch. But unless we get this right, you know, there's two different trajectories for the earth, for human life to go. One is, you know, you can't say what you think. The state owns everything. It's an Orwellian nightmare. And what's happening in Ukraine right now, I think, is going to determine which trajectory we take. Do we take the the path of freedom and democracy or do we go down the Putin and, and other authoritarian uh, surveillance states? And we really need to have that bigger long term picture, in my humble opinion, because um, a lot of countries are watching. We're going to see if we succeed or if we fail. And if Russia is able to attack a European democracy and win, that's just not going to be good for our kids. And I think we are so lucky that the Ukrainians are the ones actually fighting and dying for honestly freedom in Europe. And um, if, if this doesn't work out, I'm afraid it's going to be our kids. So we really need to support them, I think, with the vision and strategy that I was talking about earlier. Uh, to make sure that we win, because if that doesn't happen, that, that's going to lead to worse things in the future. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.